hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Our final book club pick of the year is the beautiful novel They're Going to Love You by Meg Howery. The story of Carlisle Martin, who dreams of emulating her mother and becoming a professional ballet dancer, living in two worlds, one with her mother and the other with her father, Robert, and his brilliant but troubled partner, Jane. As years pass, Carlisle yearns to live with her father and Jane, even as the AIDS crisis descends upon their community. However, one fateful decision will lead to dire consequences that may only be revealed 19 years later via an unexpected and devastating phone call. Meg Howery is a novelist, actor and former professional dancer from Los Angeles. Her non-fiction has been published in Vogue and the Los Angeles Review of Books. Meg made her theatrical debut in James Lapine's Twelve Dreams at the Lincoln Centre, and in 2001, she received the Ovation Award for Best Supporting Actress in a Musical for her role in the Broadway national tour of Contact. As a professional dancer, Meg performed with the Joffrey Ballet and the City Ballet of Los Angeles, amongst others. She's the author of four novels and the co-author of two under the pen name Magnus Flight. We are thrilled to be joined by Meg herself today, so Meg, welcome to Power Bookends. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This is great. <laughs> oh, thank you for coming on. So what we like to start with, and uh, our bookends, our listeners will know about this, um, and we'll be interested to know what you are currently reading. Yes. Well, I know about this question too because I am also a listener. I feel like we could. <laughs> I feel like we could spend our whole time talking about how great Maggie Shipstead's The Great Circle is. Oh my yeah. goodness! Oh god! I just finished last night, and it was a, a reread for me. Lainey Zumas's Red Clocks. Do you know this book? No, I love okay. the title immediately put it on your list. Yes, okay. it's happening. <laughs> it's so good. I read it when it first came out in 2018 and I loved it so much. I just sort of inhaled it. I, I, I read it too fast. I think, you know yeah. how you sort of yeah. gobble. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And um, I was thinking about it recently and sort of gave myself the indulgence of rereading. Uh, you know, you have so many books that you need mm. to get to and want to get to. So rereading sometimes feels like a, you know, a sport boiling situation but um and it's even better uh second time oh wow yeah the fact that you read it we read it so soon after the first read like that's yeah it's just great (laughs) yes it's a it's set in a uh, sort of uh, near future United States, which now feels like present day United States and it's multiple point of view characters all women um it's really sort of this story centered around abortion rights and female reproductive rights. But each character, and sometimes with multi-character novels, you know, you'll prefer one voice or one storyline mm-hmm. over the other. This is every single character so clear and vivid and deep and rich. And yeah, it's a must that Sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah. Must I, I love I love those kind of those novels that encapsulate so many different people. Yeah. Yes. You know, I think it's so hard. It must be so hard to do as well. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I love that. But yes, that's how to simulate. A hundred percent. Here we go again. <laughs> yeah, I've already got a book stack that's ridiculous okay. from this podcast. So oh, thank you for adding to that. It's actually yes. <laughs> You're probably going to get a message from us being like, "Oh my god, it's so." Good. <laughs> I have. I'm sure I will. You'll love it. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, so before we get into the book, so you started out in your career as um, an actor and a professional dancer. What was your journey like into that industry? The dancing is what started first. Okay. That's what I did from a little girl on. And I'm from a really small town in the middle of the United States. So I had to leave home really early. Uh, I left home at 12 to go, yeah, to go away and train. And then I ended up in New York when I was 15. And that was my career for a while. And then I sort of started acting in my 20s. And I used to joke that there were like four of us in New York City who could dance ballet and say words without, you know, throwing (laughs) up. So... So we got all the parts. If they needed someone who could dance ballet and say words, there were like four of us. Um, so that was lucky. So I, I did some theater, um, mostly theater and dancing, sometimes just theater, and then came out to Los Angeles in my 30s and danced for a little bit here. And But I was really coming out here because I wanted to start writing. And I sort of felt like I needed to reinvent myself a little bit. Yeah, and yeah. Los Angeles is a place where a lot of people come to do that. Um, yeah. Although I may be the one of the few people that come to Los Angeles to stop acting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> An anomaly, right? There's a there is a moment in the book where there's a conversation between someone in LA and they say, "What kind of writer are you? You know, are you something or a screenwriter? No, you made this up. No, I've not made it up. Did oh, you read my Vogue this? article? That's in my Vogue. Oh, that was in your Vogue article. <laughs> you know why? I've read you this why? because I I read your book and finished it and then immediately followed it up with the article so that's where I've got that from okay so that was actually you then that was actually you that somebody said that okay that makes sense very well researched (laughs) well regardless I love that Vogue article and I am going to link it in the show notes for anybody else that wants to read it because it's a brilliant read Um, um, so I would love to know what it was like for you to I guess reflect on that period of your life as a dancer um when writing this book it was interesting my my second book is also set in the dance world but it, it takes a very different lens and I didn't think I would ever write about ballet or dance again, because you don't want to repeat yourself. And, um, and I had this, this story for they're going to love you. I had sort of, it was a plot in search of characters for a while. Mm -hmm. I knew what was going to happen in the book, but I didn't know who it was going to happen to. And I think it was pandemic really that, you know, like a lot of people, I'm suddenly furloughed from my job and shut in my apartment. And I was watching dance a lot online um, and watching these and, and, and music and theater too. And just watching all these artists try to stay afloat and figure out how to keep working. And I was so moved by it and started to think, maybe there's something left I have, something left inside me to say about this world, different from what I was thinking, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, sometimes your characters age with you. I'm, you know, I just turned 50. This central character's in her 40s. It was a different way into looking at the profession. Um, So it was cool um, and interesting. And it kind of returned dance to me in a way that I felt like it had been gone for my life for a while. So I'm grateful for that. It's a really difficult thing to let go of as well. I mean, I I used to dance. Um, I started dancing when I was three. Um, but I, I'm an actor. Um, so I started, like dance was like my first love. Like that was, 
I started dancing when I was three. I started acting in classes when I was five. And acting was like my chosen career. And I really struggled when I was at college deciding to go to university and what to study. I was torn between studying dance or studying acting. And I went down the acting route. And I continued to dance at uni, you know, doing the dance clubs. Um, and we competed with our university team and all that kind of stuff. So I stayed in that world for a little bit. But when I graduated, I mean, I couldn't afford to take dance classes anymore. And I think it being a dancer, Dancer, like I mean I'm not I, I wasn't a ballet dancer I've done all sorts of styles hip-hop was like my main like love yeah. but you know as a dancer like it feels like it's always within you um yeah. and I think the way you wrote this book it was so like I felt so connected to, to the way you wrote this book as a, as a dancer I really felt like that there's like a part of me that kind of like lurks in the dark that's like I really want to dance like you know there'll be a certain song that comes on and I can feel like my body wanting to <laughs> choreograph something or get into something I think it always kind of lives within you but yeah I was just really you know I was you know really curious about what that was like for you but it sounds like it was a nice writing process rather than kind of a, a sad one yes there's definitely I think you're right absolutely there's a kind of identity that grows in you if you dance and it can be really difficult the transition into something else there's so much about dance that connects you to yourself and makes you feel special in a certain way and when you lose it you're like oh, okay I'm just an ordinary person now there's nothing interesting about me I don't have anything to show for myself and it was my entire education too I didn't go to college or, or anything it was, it was the only thing I knew how to do yeah. um, so it was a real loss in a way as much as at the time I was excited about writing and about reinventing myself it was difficult and and still sometimes surfaces in me and I, I also get imposter syndrome when people are like oh you're a ballerina I'm like oh kind Kind of. <laughs> I, I, was I? <laughs> oh, can I just say as well, I was obsessed with that video that you posted yesterday of you unboxing your books. <laughs> That was iconic. <laughs> <laughs> the things I'll do to sell books, including uh, put on point shoes in my kitchen. Stagger up. If I didn't already way. have it, I would have bought it for that video alone. <laughs> so, <laughs> yay. <laughs> Well, you know, I feel kind of left out because, you know, the best I can do is a macarena. There's <laughs> <laughs> not but wrong with a macarena. You can't be that, right? <laughs> You're an actor too, though, aren't you? I am, yeah, yeah. I am. So yeah, I, I do other creative things. You are creative. But yes. so, there was a great in the book about um, how difficult it was to make movie stars dance and how, like, if you get them to do more than two steps and say a line, it's like, whoa, whoa. whoa. And I'm like, oh, it's me, it's me. <laughs> Yeah, no, don't make me move and talk. <laughs> Hard. <laughs> but I think I think for me, like as a non-dancer, um, the the way that you write dance is so poetic. It made me feel like I was a ballet dancer. You know, I was okay. like, oh my goodness, this is it was beautiful the way that you described it. Your descriptive um style was just unbelievably good. You know, I don't know what it feels like to be a ballet dancer, but you you made me feel it. How much of of, I mean, we've talked about it before but in terms of, of the dance content in it how much of that was kind of planned out beforehand like she's going to be a ballerina she's going to do this she's going to take classes James is going to be involved in the world her parents going to be part of the dance world was it always going to be a 
book about Bill in the Dance World or did that come after like you say like the plot and things? Right so it did come after the plot and I was really cautious about it because because writing about dance is difficult and you want to feel you want it to feel accessible mm -hmm. um, to people who know nothing about dance and and who maybe don't care you know it can sometimes seem like this you know weird elitist strange little uh, world and that's not entirely wrong <laughs> but um one of the things when I was thinking about the book and starting to think well maybe that maybe they're dancers maybe this is their history and I pulled out some of my old dance books um photograph books and things some of which I've had since I was you know a student and I'm looking at these photographs and I used to you know of course like worship the, the great stars of the ballet and they were you know I'd have them on my walls and such and and this time I was really focused on the people behind the stars you know the sort of woman in the back corner of the photograph and that, that's also with movies when I watch those old like MGM musicals I'm obsessed with the girls in the background <laughs> you know like so like Sid Charisse will be doing amazing things in the front and then there'll be you know six brunettes behind <laughs> her and I'm just wondering like what was their day like you know yeah. on set and were they sticking you know a bun in their purse to take home for their roommate who didn't get the job you know just yeah. <laughs> imagining that whole the whole life and so I thought would be interesting to look at this career not from the point of view of this of a star or someone massively successful but people that were just that were like so many of us that just worked yeah. and 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 had to take weird jobs and worried about money and tried to make it happen and you know we're always trying to feel inside it and sometimes succeeding and sometimes not so so that that really became a force for the book to really look at yes what it's like to be a, a dancer but what it's like to be an artist yeah and as a woman what it's like to be an artist as a woman and and in my country where there's the support for the arts is terrible and um <laughs> yeah <laughs> Right. So, yeah. So you feel always on the outside of things, not just sometimes within your profession, but culturally, you know, yeah. always having to explain to other people that, no, it's actually a, a real thing yeah. to be yeah. an artist. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it is work. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's not it's not about, you know, ego or fame or money because we're not seeing any of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> any, any actor or, um, or dancer or creative, yeah. really, that I know very rarely does it for the glory because there really right. is not much glory in it um, leave your ego at the door leave you? your ego at the door <laughs> and and it, you know i hate the term jobbing actor or you know working actor yeah. or jobbing dancer because no you're an actor yeah. no you're a dancer there, what is what, what's the criteria for you oh now i've become an actor right because i've done this this and this you know right i, I, I hate when you know there's still a lot of people that last me you know oh are you still doing the acting thing like it's just like <laughs> on the know, <laughs> just right. so what I'm doing for the laugh like oh yeah I just you know I, I put right. all this money and went into so much student debt to <laughs> You would never ask that to someone that did any other courses at uni. Right. You, no. you know, if they weren't a creative, right. they don't know. Are you still doing that architecture thing? <laughs> right, right. Still trying to make lawyering happen. Yeah. yeah. But Good luck to you. <laughs> it, it's so infuriating. And yeah. I think, you know, it is one of the 
those things where it's like if you're not in that world if you haven't worked to become an artist before like you don't truly understand the amount of like hard work and perseverance that it actually takes Mm -hmm. and I think in this book like that really comes across like I think if somebody wasn't in those worlds like they would really get a feel for what it's like Mm -hmm. I think you definitely communicated that like so well yeah and how well Carlisle manages her like her career like you said it's not it's not some kind of superstardom but she worked really really well and she's so good at what she does and it well actually actually the she you say she didn't reach uh, sorry she didn't reach the superstardom but there was the moment towards the end without giving too much away where she not spoiling anything i'm gonna be careful i'm gonna be careful the way somebody says to her that they were aware of her career and how well she'd actually done Mm. so did she actually do well but she was being hard on herself and just moving along or was yeah I don't know I think she was really really good at what she did and in in the dance world yeah became became we've got the writer right here (laughs) why are we not Was she actually successful and she didn't believe in her success? Like she didn't realise how successful she was because she was being so harsh on herself. Yeah, we need to know. I mean, I think both interpretations are good. We're both right. We're both right. (laughs) Well, no, because it is that thing of, well, first of all, as we're talking about, like what does success really mean? And and so, yes, I, I imagined her as being really good and that there are people in the dance world that would love her work and know her work that she wouldn't necessarily be aware of that the way you're not aware you know of the people that go to see you in plays and talk about you after you don't hear that conversation but they're mm-hmm. saying oh my god she was amazing she was so good I've seen her in three other things you know and you have yeah. no idea <laughs> and I think that we're so hard on ourselves that she would not she would and as an artist you're always sort of wanting to be part of a conversation or, or seeing goalposts yeah. And and then moving those goalposts. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, you get one great job and you feel really successful or if you feel like, oh, I really, you know, here I am, I'm arriving. And then and then you go into a panicked frenzy of when's the next <laughs> job going to come? Can I pay my rent? Yes. Is everything OK? <laughs> yes. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> so when I'm, I'm moving slightly on, oh. um, but when Carlisle is 10, there is a businessman on her flight that comments on the way that she sleeps. And she says, as it happens, I'll never fall asleep on a plane again. And it was that kind of adolescent realization of your body is kind of not your own. That only really happens for females, I would say. Now, Lydia has a really great quote from the book that I feel uh, really kind of epitomizes that sense of fear. So she's going to read your own book back to you. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) But this is, um, as our book until now, this is again another one where me and Hannah both picked the same thing. Because we we were like, that stuck with us. Um, So this is Carlisle in a park. I need to sit down. There's a lovely tiny park at hand and a bench occupied by two chatting women, a little older than I am. We smile at each other the way women do when we're signalling our gratitude that the stranger invading our space is a woman rather than a man yes like how many times have you had that where 
I literally had it at a train station today. And I, I was like, so I, I thought, where do I sit? And, you know, the seat by a man and the seat by a woman. I'm going to sit by the woman every time. And, yeah. you know, yeah. um, it's, it, it, you wrote it so well. And I think, although I said mo- moving slightly on, I think there is definitely a link, a thing between dancers and their bodies. And mm. certainly when dancers start out early and the sort of sexualization of their young body and the way their bodies are talked about. Um, I know when I was at college, I was in a dance class and I'm we, when we were at college, we had to do contemporary and we had to try and do ballet. But I had never been a fan of ballet simply because of the way my body looks and I knew my body wasn't the right body for ballet. And it didn't help. We were in these leotards and tights and I'm very short, quite curvy. None of the other people in my class were. And the teacher was going, oh, you know, you've got these, these gorgeous long legs bodies and and it was just kind of a nod to the fact that I didn't look like that and she really acknowledged that and and I just think that is we dance and dance and bodies you know they are things that are intrinsically linked but like why was it important for you to include moments like this in the book and was it sort of linked to the way she feels about her body and the way she perceives her body yes I'm so glad you liked that um passage I think I'm always trying to get inside the bodies of my characters all of them And for Carlisle, who becomes quickly very tall, um, and it becomes this conflict for her because she's remarkably tall, not just for a ballet dancer, but for a woman. And it makes her body a target and and a thing that she wrestles with. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of women wrestle with their own bodies and feel like their body just simply by existing is a target out in the world. And so we look for refuge for our bodies. And and often when we find them with other women, it's very powerful. And I mean, obviously we all go through a time, especially in adolescence, where our bodies are targets for other girls too. I mean, we're just, it's a a painful process. (laughs) I mean, I should say female bodies because everybody identifies in different ways, but I really wanted this book to feel physical and to give you a sense of the bodies of all the characters and I, I felt that, that was maybe another way in for readers that weren't dancers that could connect to what it feels like to be inside their body, to move their body through the world and constantly sort of gauging the reactions to it from the world. So one really, really lovely part of the book for me was the close friendship between Freya and Carlisle. It was wonderfully nuanced. Every interaction felt natural, loving, believable. I mean, I have friendship like that. I've got... I'm going to read it you again. I've got another quote. You know what I might when we quote? I can't <laughs> not. But I think it it really epitomises that, their relationship oh, and yeah, how yeah. well it's written. So, Freya is exactly the kind of artist and woman I want to be. Strong, strange, funny, elegant, opinionated. We talk about things, ambitions, ideas, books, religion, art, sex. Some nights we grab a studio and I improvise movements to lines from one of Freya's plays as she reads them out. I get her up and moving with me the inspiration for my latest group of duets for one trained dancer and one not. Our residency romance continues when we return to Los Angeles. Her boyfriend is beautiful but dumb. (laughs) She calls him the last hurrah. Something to get out of the system so I can move on to the dependable man I love dearly. One day she calls me up and asks if she can come over and walk straight into my apartment and talks and cries for hours. Nothing specifically traumatic has happened. It's a conjunction of various stresses, her work not going well, old shit with the family surfacing. The last hurrah can still be hurtful even when she doesn't love him. 
a friend of hers from conservatory days is doing well and it's wretched to be jealous. For the first time in my life, I don't listen to another person with observant greed. I listen as if I'm inside her body while she's talking. When she takes a long, shuddering breath, I do too. We burst out laughing at the same time. Now, I mean, if you've not got a friend like that in your life, go look for one because yeah. they make they make your life bearable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Frey doesn't feature, um, you know, a lot in the book. She kind of crops up at these key pivotal moments throughout. So why why do you believe that she's so integral, Dory? Because I, I really believe that she's so important. <laughs> yeah, she's so important. There are a couple of reasons. One, I, I, I really believe and am interested in friendships that happen sort of later in life. And this is a friendship that forms when they're, you know, in their 30s. And, and Carlyle says of Freya that she's my first real friend. And I think it's, you know, partly Carlyle not knowing herself until a certain point in her life. And I have felt myself that I didn't learn to become a good friend until slightly later in my life. I had close friends as a young person, but I didn't know how to be a good friend until I was a little bit older. And so I kind of wanted to give Carlyle that since she has enough, <laughs> she has enough problems. Um, and then, yes, because Carlisle is not married and does not have children. And I think it's important that we know that women don't need to be married or have boyfriends or girlfriends or children to experience intimacy in their lives. So I wanted her to have someone with whom she was really intimate with as as a gift for her, but also just as a thing to explore in the novel where there's so many complicated relationships um, to sort of balance that. I love it. I want to, yeah. <laughs> also so intimate. And you know, I sometimes feel sad for men. I'm like, oh, you, you really don't I let you like, allow yeah. yourself out of that. It's very like on the surface level. So yeah. yeah. Not all sure. men. Not all men. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, oh, sorry, go on. No, they, I don't think they get our vocabulary for friendship. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> poor things. Poor things. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> So the, uh, I've done it again, I hate when I'm laughing and then I have to talk about something serious. Um, okay, right, serious face. Um, so obviously the, the book is set during the AIDS crisis. Um, well, one part of the book is set during the AIDS crisis. And there are some really beautifully written moments that kind of perfectly capture this really, this huge tra- tragedy. Um, and also, you know, the community at the heart of this tragedy. What drew you to wanting to write about this period? And like, how was it to write? such a sensitive topic? I approached it uh, delicately because because there's so much good and important writing from people who survived this and people looking at, at that time. And so what do I have to say and what, you know, what right do I have to say it? So I thought a way in for me was to put it through Carlisle's perspective as a young person who's watching this thing unfold and she's observing it and it's touching her, but she's not inside it. And she doesn't fully understand the way it is scarring the people closest to her. Um, I mean, she comes to that understanding, but what do you understand about trauma when you're 10, you know, in, in, in the adults in their lives? And I think um, it was a way to kind of honor to what I experienced as a young person um, when I had teachers and friends and people I admired 
and uh, dying and and the kind of emptiness and loss that we all lived through during that time and what it meant to survivors. Y- years later, I had a, became friends with some some older guys in their in their sixties at the time and sort of mentors to me, not quite in the same way that it works in the book, but but definitely mentors. And I was surprised because I was just a you know stupid woman in her twenties, <laughs> you know, stupid kid, um, and they were so sophisticated and brilliant and interesting. And um, I was surprised they wanted to be friends with me. And, and one of them said to me, oh, it means so much to us to, to be friends with a young person because everyone we know died. And I never forgot it. Um, and that was in my head too, when I was writing this time period um, and thinking about what was lost in that time. Well, like I said, it was, you know, it was written so beautifully. And, you know, there was a moment that really stuck out to me. And I think Lydia I said it did. Yeah. It's the moment where Robert and James, I don't know who answers the phone. James, James answers <laughs> the phone and he just, it's just a phone call and he answers the phone and gives a look and says a name. And that's all that needs to be said. And then there's just like a sort of silent communication between them. Although there's one word said, it's just a name. And there's just an understanding there that, you know, her as a young person doesn't kind of follow uh, what's kind of going on in the room but she senses that change in the room and I think you know that was just so beautifully written that really touched me that moment yeah it is such a horrendous time and the, and people were so they were they were treated so terribly mm. by governments by society you know and to kind of have that knowledge whilst reading this book where you're you're not looking at society's treatment of them and you're not looking at the government's treatment of them you're inside their house in this enclosed private space watching these things unfold but having that knowledge of of how they were treated outside of those doors you know it is just so yeah it it was really painful um to read and I'm so sorry that you you know you lost people during that time I do also want to uh, slot in a recommendation to listeners um and I'm not sure if you've watched it yourself Meg um the the program it's a sin um Russell have you watched it yes yeah it's um, a great Phenomenal. TV show um, that's written by Russell T Davis, who is incredible. Hi, Doris. Yeah, me too. And that's set during the AIDS crisis, and it is just a really brilliant show. So I will pop that recommendation in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Lydia, you had a question link into this. Yeah. You? So as the story progresses, we begin to see how Robert Carlyle's father is kind of unequivocal about cutting people off when they do wrong to him or his family. He's very sort of like, no, that's yeah. it. Now you're gone. You're gone. Um. <clears throat> Can you tell us a bit more about why Robert was like? Yes. Yeah, so I, in imagining his character and, and, and again, trying to be inside his body and his history, he's someone who has made choices in his life and felt like the only way through them was to, to be absolute about it. I mean, he's cut off from his family. He lives a very different life than what he was brought up to. He's, you know, a man who came of age in the 60s and 70s from conservative family and he becomes this artist and a gay man living in New York and he's so protective of everything he has because it is so hard won for him so I think his absolutism really comes from that this sense that that he has fought so hard to claim this space for himself that he cannot allow anyone to take anything away from him and his relationship with James is very much like this and and Carla doesn't realize as as a young person, the extent to which James is a, a thing that Robert 
not just loves, but needs and, and wants to protect. And I think that does happen with us when we feel fragile about something. It's when we'll fight most viciously for it, yeah. right? And refuse to be generous in the ways that we can be generous when when we feel more secure. Um, so that's really where thinking about that character. Yeah, I feel for me, Robert felt like he was very much about self-preservation mm-hmm. and how hard it was to stay afloat in this world and how easily things could just topple. And, right. you know, in that position, I mean, I'm sure we've all sort of felt in that moment, like I'm, gonna, I'm either going to have to, I'm in this corner, I'm going to fight my way out or I sit here. And I think he's very much about, no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna let put me in the corner right and there's there is a kind of a what's the word like a contrast between him and James there's a huge contrast between the way they handle things and I think mm-hmm. you know there's definitely a sense that not only is it all the other things that have gone on in their life it is you know what this what the AIDS crisis has done to them and to their mentalities and one of them you know has chosen to at times let it swallow them yeah. and the other has the emotional side and the other has gone no and it's almost like blocking it out in a sense and both ways are you know really sad and just coping mechanism. yeah it is yeah right. um right. But i think the contrast between the two was really powerful yeah um there's also a i'm not going to do a long quote because <laughs> we're constantly reading your book back to you <laughs> you've read the whole thing we absolutely if it wasn't clear already listeners like we absolutely love oh yeah we book. actually we really like this one <laughs> just a bit <laughs> <laughs> get it on your tbrs <laughs> um, so there is a quote um and i i must have reread this line about six times because i just loved it uh, carlisle says i swear to god i will set a match to bank street i will watch it burn to the ground and it's so short that line but i really oh. understood that rage <laughs> i understood it so so well and I was thinking you know that is the only sort of rage that can be provoked by a parent or a child within that dynamic mm-hmm. I don't think there's any other relationship in my life that could provoke that rage my mom oh <laughs> <laughs> my mom my dad anybody else my, no. my kids but it's like yeah it's it's so powerful that rage yeah. and I really in that one short line I really felt it and you know parent and child dynamic are well parent-child relationships are so nuanced and that you definitely get the sense of that with Carlisle and her mother and Carlisle with their father and Carlisle with James and you know there are so many nuances with their relationships and but what made you want to write their dynamics in this way I mean especially with the sort of rage she invokes she she feels (laughs) with her relationship with Robert you know you start off in a book not knowing your people Mm -hmm. um, and you know you know certain things about them and and for me especially with with this book where everyone has a point of view and and everyone makes a mistake and i really wanted to feel that that sort of trickiness you know nobody is perfect and so when when writing each character's point of view all, all i can say is i just try to get as as honestly and deeply inside their body as much as possible and then just figure out like what's the most honest scary thing inside this person and the deeper I got into the book, the more sort of sweaty it became. Yeah. Um, and it's a good thing I write at home because it's just like a 
a mad scene and it's just like <laughs> wild movement. Um, so yeah, I think like the hotter and more vivid and honest, especially with Carlisle, who like is brutally honest, both about herself and, and what she's trying to keep a lid on for much of the book. And so, yeah, so it's really, I mean, things just grow and the kind of understanding that you get from your characters by the end of the book is what's so hard about finishing a book because mm-hmm. it's like you've created all these people that you know so well and then it goes out of your hands and then you know I'm now like a few weeks away from the book coming out in the world and of course I hope people you know read it and like it but I'm just this is why it's so great to hear you read and talk about it because it's like you're talking about like my friends that nobody knows <laughs> you know my people um, it's like <laughs> It just uh, it it's a, a blessing to the loneliness of you know having to wait a year for people to to know these people as much as I did. So I don't know if that answered that question. It just went yeah, into my no, own. No, totally <laughs> I mean, I think we understand the, the mixture of the feeling of almost as actors, you live in a character for, mm. for four weeks of rehearsals yeah. and then two weeks of a show. And then it's like the curtain you've been You've been inhabiting these characters' worlds for four weeks and, and then like, suddenly you can... Oh, okay. I have yeah. to leave that woman behind that I've just played yeah. and felt mm. like I was so long. And I feel like that might be something akin to the same. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's very much the same. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, definitely in that moment, inside Carlisle, I wanted to set a match and burn it to the ground, you know, as she she did. I felt that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love the rage. Olivia's going to kill me. I'm holding on to her so she doesn't start her question. I am staring off track and she hates when I do this, hates it. But I'm just so interested in the fact, I'm sorry, Lydia. Oh, this point, it's yet again. <laughs> I am so interested in, you keep saying that um, you really wanted to get into these characters' bodies. Yeah. And obviously I said that this quote in particular, you know, that rage was so visceral for me. Like I felt that for her. Mm. And you were also just saying about how, you know, you're really glad that you write at home because there's lots of wild movement and stuff. Do you move while you're writing? Is there a movement that you do to get you into character? Is there a link between that? Or have I just totally read this wrong? <laughs> no, it's so interesting. I just did the audio book for Oh, wow. For, yeah. And I, it's the first book I've narrated. And I was thinking, how can I read this? You have to stay so still, right? So that <laughs> you don't, you know, pick up anything. And I cannot be still. <laughs> so I then I was realizing oh when I write I do adopt like a posture for each character Uh, you'll understand this as actors so I could do many versions of that in the yeah but yeah sometimes it's music I mean I listen to music a lot when I write nothing with lyrics but um this book especially because there's a lot of music in the book um so yeah there's a sort of like weird dance I do before or I approach the computer where I'm like, is this really happening? Preparation. Yeah. yeah. I'm really going to write now, right? (laughs) Nope. No, no, not yet. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I circle it like a shark. And then, and then, yeah, always while typing, I'm, I'm trying to 
feel this scene, how the bodies are moving mm -hmm. in the scene, what's happening, and also trying to f just find the vocabulary or the new ways of saying, you know, she got up from the chair or, and some things you just don't understand until you're doing them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's, uh, I, I've, a couple of times I've tried writing before, before pandemic times, I would try writing in a cafe or, or something. And I thought, <laughs> look like a <laughs> lunatic in Los Angeles. <laughs> Even in Los Angeles, I look like a crazy person. So, yeah. yeah well, anyone, anyone that knows me knows that having to do this podcast, I have to have something in my hands or hold something because I'm a chronic gesticulator. Yeah. <laughs> not talk with my hands and I get told off. Get told off by yeah. Billy, our wonderful, wonderful tech, who constantly tells me do not hit the microphone. Yeah, not pull out the headphones. Yeah, um, because I just can't. And yeah, the crab yeah. claws come out when I get that excited, and I'm like. <laughs> So yeah, I, uh, understand. I understand you. Relate, yeah. <laughs> so you can go back to your question now. Oh, can I? Yeah. Thank um, <laughs> So we touched on it a little bit before, actually, about the kind of moral ambiguity of, of a lot of the characters and about the, their reaction scene. Um, I loved the way that nobody came out of the story unscathed. There was, you know, any of the decisions that were made sort of had an had a instant reaction and effect on all of the characters around Carlisle including herself but particularly with Robert and particularly with James and how kind of you never quite knew where you stood kind of morally on things it was sort of like well you know maybe that's okay and then well no kind of I kind of understand why they'd be angry and then, and it, I, I really love that ambiguity was that intentionally put in did you feel like that's really a, a really kind of key point to have yes that's the dream reader statement <laughs> that you just made oh, yes oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exactly, yes, I, I hope that people would take sides and change sides and be all like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Um, because I think that's honest, too. I mean, sometimes we know we've absolutely done the right thing. And sometimes we know we've absolutely done the wrong thing. But a lot of the times we do things and we know our motives are mixed and we know we didn't nail it. And we know that we're holding on to things we shouldn't hold on to or our reactions are coming not from the thing that the person said but from a whole bag of paper clips of other shit that we've got you know yeah. stored up and stuff I don't know what I can say on your podcast oh, oh any swear away <laughs> go for it <laughs> so to me that just felt like really the more honest place to look at the way um just a tangent a little bit but um I went years ago to this this poetry reading and the poet one of her pieces was everyone's sitting down on the ground and she said if you feel like it if it's honest for you stand up and say I will be the first to lay my weapons down and it was a piece about pacifism really and at the moment and and so people started standing up and saying it, and I sat there thinking I am not going to lay my weapons down I am so <laughs> angry I you know we had an election in this country and it was just it was a time when I just felt like I was just discovering my weapons in a way and, and was was uh, not going to lay them down, even though, of course, I believe in peace and I believe in, in doing that. 
it's a beautiful thing. Her piece is absolutely right on. So it was just interesting to watch myself reject it at the time. And then when I was writing this book, I thought, yeah, these are people who will not lay their weapons down. And in fact, they're making things from their weapons. They're making art. They're making good decisions and bad decisions. And so in a way, the, the book is a kind of journey to see who's going to lay their weapons down and and what will that bring them anyway that poet's name is mandy khan i'm going to give her a shout out now oh, she's thank a you no, <laughs> look her up yeah. i love that and i love that that inspired you with your work like that's art inspires art i love that. yeah that's why we all need to be going and seeing things and exactly. reading things um, artists everyone yeah support art <laughs> come to my place yes please yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it isn't about us right now Oh gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I really felt if it wasn't already apparent as though the protagonist was speaking directly to me and I don't just mean that in a metaphorical sense I really felt that there was a, a conversational tone the way that you write and I wanted to know was was this a conscious choice or was this something that just kind of grew organically when you were writing it's you know when you write in first person it's tricky because because it has to feel like it has to feel really personal as if the author was you know writing a thinly disguised memoir or you know diary it has to feel that way no matter how far the character is from from your own thing so I couldn't really start writing until I had her voice in my head um so there's usually I, I usually think about books for a couple of months before I can make any kind of writing happen um like a big brooding period and once I started once I had like maybe the second or third chapter, I felt her voice like, oh, okay, I know, I know what she sounds like. And part of the accessibility too is that it, she needed to feel like, oh, just like, you know, a woman that you're hearing talking mm-hmm. um, directly to you saying the scary bits out loud. So that was fun. And it was interesting, actually, when I went into the booth to do the audio recording, I thought, well, you know, most of this book is her voice. So I should do it as close to my natural speaking voice as possible. I thought, but she doesn't sound like me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different voice. I should have gotten an actor um so yeah I, I'm glad that her voice felt you know real to you and and accessible my my first readers uh, I have a little writing group in Los Angeles and they look at things in progress and none of them are dancers so that was really important to me that does this voice work or do you feel this person does she feel real to you but also like you know do you have a way into this book yeah, uh, yeah. I was also reading it and um, thinking how much of a great adaptation Mate, there's again with their adaptation. I, I, I just think it would be so beautiful. You're not tall enough. Right. Freya, 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 yeah, Freya. Yeah, Freya. Yeah, but yeah. she lives on the phone. I can live on the phone. <laughs> no, for the adaptation, she's got more scenes. Oh, they think there is an adaptation. No, for my dream adaptation. The dream. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> that we're gonna okay. make happen. <laughs> yes. Do you see how I did that? I was trying to yeah. get it out of you, and I. <laughs> So, um, I I would like to end on uh, my last question. Um, I'd like to end on um, it's my favorite question that I ask everybody, literally everyone I meet, but particularly authors, and that is, what authors have inspired you and your work? Ah, it puts you on the spot. I (laughs) realize. There's this, I mean, it's the people I love the most, I don't write anything like. I wish I 
could. Um, but I think the, the, the writers that made me want to be a writer were people like Sybil Bedford and Iris Murdoch and Virginia Woolf and Ian Forrester and Ford Maddox Ford and Somerset Mom. And I didn't really start, I think because I didn't go to college. So um, I was always trying to catch up in my education. Mm-hmm. I didn't reading contemporary fiction until I started writing contemporary fiction. So the people that I, I'm loving now are people like Charles Yu, um, Zadie Smith, uh, Yoon Lee, um, gosh. The question when someone says, what's your favorite book? And you forget every yeah. book that's ever but been as written. Soon as, as soon as you finish this call, you'll go, ah! Oh my gosh, <laughs> when was you? And yeah, Ruth Azeki. Um, um, yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, and Miriam Toes, yeah, All My Puny Sorrows is like the book I hand probably the most to people. I have um, <gasps> Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, look after you going, look at the show, it's going on TV on it right now. Promise, yeah. man, I promise. Don't hate us with the <laughs> <laughs> um, After you read Lainey Zumas's Red Clocks, then you read yeah. All, yeah. My, All My Puny Sorrows. Okay. Which, yeah, it's <laughs> fantastic. Um, and she wrote a book called Women Talking, which is about to come out as a film, too. Yes, and, I've heard yeah. about this. Yes, yeah. yes I, I haven't read that either, but yeah, yeah. of course I've heard about that adaptation. adaptation. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's uh, obvious to you, but I don't want to let you go. I would like to continue talking yeah. to you, but we can't keep you forever, unfortunately. Now, They're Going to Love You isn't out yet when we record this. That's my voice. Oh, uh, yeah. When we record this, uh, but by the time this episode comes out in December um, it will be out in all bookstores um, so we will be including a link in our show notes we will be raving about it non-stop mm-hmm. because it is an incredible book so listeners please do go buy do go, I can't even get my words out oh, please yeah. do go buy this book that's how passionate I am about it I can't even get my words out <laughs> it makes it's passionate. such an incredible book and Meg I'm going to tell you now because I'm so confident it's one of my top 10 reads of the year and it's very difficult for me to make these choices but it's in there (laughs) Uh, I'm so honored (laughs) you're so honored that Hannah from Uh, Manchester that nobody knows (laughs) I'm sweating that's what I do when I get emotional I start sweating oh (laughs) but we want to make you sweat (laughs) but it is an incredible book and readers really do not miss uh, miss out on this one um it's amazing and uh, we will include a link in the show notes as we've said also we're definitely going to be listening to the audiobook uh now oh, that no. i know that you're narrating it Happy hands on that love that oh i hope i did the english accent for freya okay don't laugh yeah oh, i'm excited to hear that now <laughs> i did a, i did a coaching session with oh, wow, an english so I was, but i didn't wander around you know the length and breadth of of your country with the vowels <laughs> hysterical yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, but before we let you go we always like to find out um is there anything you've been enjoying recently we love a cultural recommendation I just went and saw Tar uh, with Kate Blanchett oh um, where she plays a conductor uh do you know this film I have not heard of this uh yeah. Tar no T-A-R just came out here. Maybe it hasn't. Oh, it won't out. be over here yeah. yet, I don't think. Yeah. Well, 
go see it when it comes oh, out. Oh, I'm like confused. Yeah. Well, is this a film? Is this a film? Yeah, yeah film. Okay. Uh, Kate, Kate Blanchett stars as a conductor. It's a really interesting movie. The person I went to see it with, we were talking about it for like three days after. Oh, wow. Oh, well, that's a good sign. Very, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, very complicated. Um, so I keep, li- I'm on the hunt for good new TV shows. So send me your recommendations, please. Um, we watched uh me and billy watched the walk-in recently which my acting coach was the lead in and he was fabulous um it's called the walk-in have you heard of stephen graham he's a big british actor but i don't know but yeah it's called the walk-in and it's about um there was a yorkshire mp um that was killed a few years ago um by some right-wing extremists and it's about that kind of that group how those things happen how dangerous and kind of toxic these um uh, groups are and how they can sort of groom young men into joining them and how mm. easily it happens um but that was a brilliant tv series so i would really recommend that oh, cool. also an american one have you watched this is us this is this is oh no i haven't us. oh Good. this is us she got it's... me onto it and to be honest it is cracking you <laughs> cry every other episode but it's so beautiful and it's it flits between this family's flits between their lives past and present um, and and it's the parents have these triplets and it's about the triplets as adults but then it goes back to what their parents were like mm-hmm. um, when they were young, and it's just kind of flitting between, and it's it shows like how they, yeah, it's, it it's how they've all kind of become these people and what's happened to them throughout their lives. But it's so beautifully done, and um, I was reading up on it because it's it's finished now, but it's it's on Prime, and um, apparently they were so confident in this story and it'd been plotted out so well that they'd actually filmed some of the final scenes years ago. Oh wow! Even though the the final season has only just come out, they'd filmed it so long ago because it had been so well plotted out and I just thought like that's like incredible but yeah that's right, yeah I cannot recommend that at all. and what a great flex to be like absolutely 100% we're gonna make it to seven seasons so yeah like, <laughs> crazy <laughs> I mean confident some good going yeah um, oh wait I'm gonna ask you because we don't have it here yet that is I, they made an adaptation of Kate Atkinson's Life After Life which I've not watched yet no yeah it, it is on it's on bbc i play yeah is it yeah we need to watch that okay can i come well, over can i come over tomorrow night and watch, watch it and we'll get <laughs> the wine in the fridge oh, don't I'll, worry i'll bring some wine like hey <laughs> i would love that you're always welcome, welcome here anytime you're always welcome. if you're ever in the uk please do give us a shout I know, because <laughs> we'll go for a wine okay <laughs> excellent <laughs> um so lydia has furiously scribbled on my notebook that I need to um say a huge thank you to Bloomsbury because they sent us copies of your book and they they're great and um you know they have helped arrange this conversation which we're so grateful for because we've loved chatting to you Meg and we don't want to let you go (laughs) well I'm coming over tomorrow night well there we go perfect (laughs) not the end it's not the end but thank you so much Meg this has been amazing we've loved chatting to you we love reading your book and is, is there anything anywhere that our listeners can find you and your work they can I'm on Instagram at Meg Howry and on Twitter and unless Elon Musk uh, uh, <laughs> unless you take no yeah by the time this episode goes out who knows right right, <laughs> right. by the time it comes out he'll have bought Christmas and we'll all have <laughs> 
I'll have to pay him $8 for it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm an unverified Meg at Meg Howery on Twitter. And, um, and I have a website, uh, which is www.meghowery. Amazing. So yeah, listeners, get following her because um, this book's going to blow up. I know it is. I'm, I'm so excited. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much, Meg. And listeners, please do rate, review and subscribe as it helps to boost us in the charts. And I think that's all we've got time for, isn't it? I am trying to let this out as long as possible. I know. Wrap it up, woman. Wrap it up. But yeah, thank you for listening. <laughs> Bye.